0: Welcome home series, finishing off with the resurrection, and so we're going to read uh, the scriptures. We're going to read out of Luke um, twenty-four today. We're we'll be beginning in verse thirteen. You can follow along on the screen. It says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he, ta- while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread.
1: All right, hey guys. I hope that you're excited about this morning, excited to be here. Uh, Like Missy said, uh, there's like an all-star week, but we had an all-star week leading up to this too. And uh, I'm just, I woke up this morning, my first thought was Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus rose from the dead this morning because of him, we have life. And so that's what we get to celebrate today, that's what we get to celebrate together. And, and so if you're new to church, if you're, if you're new to um, uh, just Easter in general, it's not about bunnies, it's not about chocolate eggs, although those things are fun and, and good and tasty. Uh, but it is, it is about our risen Lord and our Savior and, and Him conquering death and, and life. And we get to celebrate that. And this morning we sang, we sang uh, Hallelujah. And if you've, if you've been around church for a while, if you've grown up in church, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, that may be a phrase that you've said before that you're used to hearing. If you haven't, then it may be a phrase you're like, what is, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, it, it simply means... Uh, praise God, praise the Lord. So the Lord, the, the ending is is Yahweh, is Yah is is this abbreviated version of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, his personal intimate name. So when we say hallelujah, we're we're saying this praise to the Lord, this intimate God who's come down. To, to rescue us and to pursue us. So when we're singing that and when, when we're singing, you know, raising a hallelujah, that's what we're declaring over us this morning, that we have a, a God like this. And just before this passage, Jesus enters Jerusalem and everyone's praising the Lord. Uh, and uh, they're saying, salvation has come. They're saying, Hosanna. Right, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He rides into Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to his death, he's going to the, the epitome, like the climax of his suffering, right, is, is, is gonna happen in Jerusalem. And so when he rides in, uh, people are putting palms down, palm branches, it's a sign of victory. And he's riding in uh, on, this, on this donkey and, and they are saying, Hosanna, they're saying salvation has come. That's what Hosanna means, salvation is here, it is, it is now. And so they're saying that over Jesus, and then, last week, on Palm Sunday, we talked about the Last Supper. Jesus goes in, and he sits with his, sits with his um, disciples, and he has this time where he is saying, this is my body that was broken for you, this is my blood that was shed for you, and I'm going to enter my suffering. And so now, a couple chapters later, we pick up, and, and we have here these two disciples we are walking along this road. And it says in verse 13, and we're just gonna jump right in. It says here that, uh, it says that very day, two of the, so which very day? What what day they're talking about? Well, this is the day of the resurrection. If you have a Bible, you can see uh, the previous verses there. It's talking about the resurrection. So that very day was when Jesus raised from the dead. So this is the same day that Jesus raised from the dead and they're walking along the road. It says two of them, two of the disciples, not the 11, not, not Peter, John, James, those guys, Nathan, not those guys, two, two other disciples are walking along the road to a village to Emmaus, uh, named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking away from Jerusalem, right? Like, have that in, in your mind. They are, they're leaving the scene of where Jesus was crucified. They're leaving the scene of where his greatest suffering and where his greatest victory was going to be, and they're walking away. They're leaving. They're going to a village called Emmaus. They've they've turned their backs, right? So they're leaving the scene that very day, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So what are they talking about? Let's, Let's talk about that real quick. So remember, last supper, Jesus says, I'm going to die. Uh, and he says, this is my body that was broken for you. Remember me when you do this. This is my blood that was shed for you, this cup, the wine. Remember me when you do this. And and then he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So a few interesting things happen right after he says this in in chapter 22. Some of the disciples argue over who's going to sit at at Jesus' right hand, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, things like that. And then Peter says, or Peter says, basically, I'm gonna go with you, Jesus, to your death. And Jesus says, actually, you're, you're not gonna do that. You're gonna deny me publicly three times. You're gonna tell people that you don't know, who think that I that you know me, that you don't know me. And you're gonna do it publicly. While I'm in my greatest suffering, you're gonna deny me, and you're gonna let me. Let me go. And he leaves Peter with that. And then they go to pray on the Mount of Olives. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying. Jesus is praying. This is a scene where he's praying. And he is literally like sweating blood because of the agony and the anguish that he's in. He is, and he's praying. And what are the disciples doing? They're supposed to be praying and keeping watch, but what are they actually doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping, right? Um, and Jesus praying, Judas comes, one of the twelve. He betrays Jesus. He brings this mob of Roman soldiers and priests and Pharisees and the religious right, and he brings them. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And Peter, at that moment, like, has woken up, right? He gets a sword and he tries to chop off someone's ear. Well, actually, he does chop off someone's ear. and Peter sa- I mean Jesus says, that's not how the kingdom works. He picks up the ear and puts it back on the guy's head. I mean, imagine that guy, right? Like, your ear's on the ground. First, of all, I'm like, Jesus, did you like, use peroxide to clean that before you put it back onto my head? Because yeah, you put my ear back on, but now I have like diseases inside me, so hopefully Jesus, we know Jesus can heal those things too, right? So Jesus puts that ear on him. The guy's probably just like standing there. And, and then everyone flees. All his friends, his closest people flee. And essentially, it's not only Judas who betrays him. It's everybody. Everybody just leaves him. Like I said last week, we don't see Peter again until he denies Jesus. And then he's gone. Then we don't see, the only other person we see is uh, John, the disciple John. And he's at the foot of the cross. And it's too late. But at least he showed up at the foot of the cross. Everyone has left him. Jesus is mocked, he's tortured, he's brutalized, he is spat on, you know, all all these things have happened all in in the course of a very short period of time, right? He he came in on Palm Sunday. Like, this is a week in Jesus' life. Do you know that the gospels, like, the majority of each gospel is spent on the last week of Jesus' life. And and so we had this last week, he's Palm Sunday, he, he rides in, like, as a king, triumphal, victorious, and, and then now they're crucifying him. So they, on one day, they're singing his praises. On the other day, they're saying, let's crucify him. He deserves death, and he's innocent, and he goes to the cross. And I don't know, if, I don't know how many of you guys came to our, our Good Friday thing in, uh, at the new common space, but that was... Uh, We've never done anything like that before. Um, I think Good Friday kind of almost kind of snuck up on us. We we're like, "Oh, we should do something, right?" And and Adam just ran with it. So thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dave and Jamie, and I don't know who else for all the work that you put put into that. Because what what we did at the New Common Space was this like artistic walkthrough experience to experience Christ last week through putting ourselves in the story. Right, and saying that we were the ones who mocked him. We're, hopefully, I'm interpreting this artistic event accurately. So we were the ones who mocked him. We were the ones who, who, who we would have been doing the same thing. And, and we walked through with our daughters, who are seven and eight. And guys, I'll never forget that moment in our family's life. It was, It was so amazing. And now I'm talking to you about about Jesus last week, and I want you to realize, like, those of you who've grown up in church who are, have who are, been followers of Jesus for a while, don't let familiarity steal the, the, prof- the profundity of this week from you. Don't let familiarity with a story take from you what, what Jesus has done for us and what he's done for you. Like, we're we're just singing hallelujah, right? We raise a hallelujah. Like, we're saying praise the Lord who's come to rescue us. Like, I don't know what, what crap you're dealing with today. Like, I don't know what your week was like. Um, mine wasn't all that great, actually. Like, I was telling Peter this morning, which I probably shouldn't be talking to Peter, he'll probably just deny me later. <laughs> but I was telling Peter <laughs> that it was just like, yeah, it, it was, just, it, was a, it was a hard weekend, and, um, but at the end of it, I was reminded of how much Jesus gave for us, and it was like I knew it for the first time, and that, that Good Friday really did that for our family. We took our seven- and our eight-year-old daughters through it, and we're just talking to them about Jesus, and at the end of it, all of us are weeping because of what Jesus has done for us, and... And, um, and then I spent time in the Word that day afterwards just, um, you know, preparing for this morning, and I was just weeping as I was reading these, these words out of this book that is like thousands of years old, right? And we have this book, and we're like, ah, it's, it's just, I don't know, there's something, like when we open this, like the presence of God, we enter into the presence of God, right? Because the Spirit has written these words, and... So that was happening to me on Friday. So as I talked about these things, as these guys are talking about the things that have happened, don't let it just gloss over on you. Don't let it just be like, oh, yeah, I've heard all this. No, this is your life, guys. Do you realize that? If this is true, Jesus is your life. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, your life is not just hidden in Christ, as Paul says. Paul also says, no, that means your life is Christ." you believe that this morning? That because he is resurrected, because he, is, he has conquered sin and that that he is your life if you're a follower of Jesus. That should cause us to raise a hallelujah, right? So he says here, uh, it says in here, they're talking about all these things. Jesus is crucified and he's in the grave. He's in the tomb. And then days have passed. And they're talking about these things. And in verse 15, it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I, we had fun with this passage, these two verses in our BLG this week, our small group, because it's, it's, it's kind of weirdly phrased. Like, uh, Justin asks, why, he asked, why, um, or, or what do you think, why do you think their eyes were kept from recognizing him? It's like, why, like, what is it? Is it lack of faith? Is it unbelief? Is it Jesus in his glorified nature, his glorified body? He just, he just looks different. What is it? In this passage, though, the, the verse before that, though, it's like it almost talks about like Jesus sneaking up behind them. It's like Jesus drew near and went with them, and it's like he sneaks up behind them and covers their eyes, and he's like, guess who? <laughs> like, he's like, peekaboo. Like, where's Jesus? There he is. <laughs> But that's exactly what we do, isn't it? That's exactly how we think, isn't it? When something happens like this, we're like, where is he? And who do we blame? We blame God. God, where are you? Why aren't you here? You said you'd be faithful. You said you would show up. In the middle of the storm, in the midst of my agony, in the muck, I don't see you. And who do we blame? We don't blame ourselves. We say, why God, why are you doing this? Why God, why are you doing that? Why are you letting that happen? Where are you, God? And it's like we think Jesus came up behind us and is covering eyes, like he's keeping us from recognizing him. No, Jesus is not doing that. Do you know what's keeping them from recognizing Jesus? Look at the next verse, verse 16, or verse 17. And he said to them, What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. It was their own disappointment. It was their own grief. It was their own state of mind. It was their own emotions. It was their own sadness over what they expected to happen that didn't actually happen. And they were blinded by it. So, yeah, it was probably a mix of their lack of unbelief, their lack of faith, their disappointment and who they thought Jesus was and he wasn't, who they wanted him to be, and they missed it. But look at what Jesus does. He lets them express their sadness. He lets them express their disappointment. He lets them express their grief, their mourning. And this is what we do when we invite people to the table, guys we should let them express these things. You know, we've been talking about this whole series, we've been talking about welcoming people into healing and abundance and forgiveness and expectation and suffering and perspective and and sacrifice, and now we're welcoming people home. Jesus is welcoming us home, right? And and he says, and, and he's showing us a model here to let people express these things, express their grief, express their disappointment, express their sadness. And he does that in verse 18, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? He's like, he's basically like, are you, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you, don't you know what's going on? Where have you been? He's like, how, how do you not know what's happening? This is like the event of the century, right? And you have no idea what's going on? And Jesus is like, What things? (laughs) He lets them express their sadness, their disappointment. And so Cleopas says to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And so he recognizes Jesus as this mouthpiece, right? This prophet of the Lord. In verse 20, it says, and our people, our chief priests, our rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But, in verse 21, we had hoped for something else. We'd hoped that he was the one to redeem, to rescue, to reconcile, to restore Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They expected something else, and they missed Jesus right in front of them. Jesus was standing right in front of them. How many of you are missing Jesus this morning in your life this week, and he's standing right in front of you because of your own sadness, because of your own emotions, because of your own disappointment, because of your own grief, because of your own mourning when Jesus has come to give you joy and peace and abundance, but you're missing Jesus standing right in front of you because of your own sadness, and you're just standing still. Looking sad. How many of you guys are missing Jesus because you expected him to look like this, a conquering king, to redeem and conquer the Romans for Israel, to conquer something in your life, and he looks like a suffering servant? And you're missing him, and you've missed him. And they're missing him. They said, we thought he was this one. We had hoped. But now it's the third day. And he told us he's going to come back on the third day. He told us he's going to be alive on the third day. And, And what makes it even worse is look at verse 22 and following. It says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They're at the tomb, at Jesus' tomb, early in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. They've heard the story, guys. They've heard the same story that we're hearing right now. And they still don't believe. This is why Jesus says to Thomas at the end of the the Gospel of John, you know, it's great for those of you who've seen and believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. They've, They've heard the story, but they haven't accepted it. They don't, they don't, Believe it. And verse 24, says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They ran there, we know in the other gospels. And they found it just as the women had said. So just what they said. But they didn't see him. They didn't see Jesus. What did they expect? Did they expect him just to be sitting there? Waiting for him? No, Jesus is on mission. He's, on, he's trying to rescue people. He is, he's appearing to different people. He is, he is in the midst of victory. He's in the midst of overcoming the world. Amen? I, he's in the midst of this, and they expect him to just be sitting there on a rock, waiting for him to say, hey guys, I'm back. No, he's chasing people down. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, "Oh, foolish ones, <laughs> fools!" You can see him. I don't know how Jesus said it. You can see it's pretty. It's pretty harsh, right? Uh, I don't know if he's saying it like as he's not condemning, right? Jesus isn't doing that. I don't know if he's rebuking, or he's saying it in his own like hurt gosh, can't you guys see? Oh, foolish ones. Like, wisdom is here before you, and you're not seeing it. Or he could be saying, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Like, What more do I have to do? And he says, you're slow of heart. What's wrong with it? Why are your hearts slow? Your hearts should know by now. I spent three years with you. You have this entire book. He says, "In slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? "...and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." When he says Moses here, he's not referring to... Ex- he doesn't, he doesn't, so if you're familiar with the scriptures, it doesn't mean he starts at Exodus, where Moses' story starts. He's talking about the Torah... The, the law, the instruction, the first five books of the Bible, because Moses was the author. So beginning with Moses, beginning with the first five books, so the entire Hebrew scriptures, basically, basically, let's see here, like this much of your Bible, the part that we don't read, right, <laughs> the, the Old Testament, the part that we're like, ah, I don't understand it, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this, Jesus starts there. Right. So, for just a little aside, for those of you guys who want to learn how to read the Bible, uh, who wanna, who, who, who say, "Why well, can't I don't?" I struggle with this. Start at Genesis. Start by reading the Bible, because uh, that's what that's what Jesus does. He don't like ignore it and say, "I can't do this." No, he he starts with Moses from the beginning, Genesis, and goes through all the prophets, and he interprets the scriptures and all the things concerning himself. That's the That's the second time in this chapter that Jesus, or or that we see this happening. So the first time we see the scriptures interpreted in light of Jesus is at the tomb. The angels do it. They say, remember what what Jesus said to you. This is in in the scriptures. And then Jesus here is the second time we see this in this one chapter. He's doing this. And then we see this, Jesus does this uh, again in the upper room with with the 11 and the rest of the disciples. So what we see here is this really sweet combination of the scriptures and the spirit of Christ working in tandem to enlighten people's hearts and their minds. Does that make sense? So for us as followers of Jesus, the word and the spirit are foundational for that in our lives. So you can operate in... You can operate in the spirit and say, oh, I'm going to follow whatever over here that's a little more abstract. But if you're not grounded in the word, then then you can just be tossed to and fro because really, and I get this by a lot of people, they're like, I don't know if it's my own thoughts or it's the spirit or I don't know, is that a sign from God or not? Well, the word is what grounds us in that. So we see here Jesus referring to the scriptures and he uses it in tandem with the word. So what does he do here? What do you think, how do you think Jesus did this, right? It's a seven-mile walk. I, how long do you think Jesus takes to, to do this? Um, he's, he's talking to them as, as they're walking, and he starts all the way back in Genesis, and he says, hey, that's me. Genesis 3.15, where it talks about that guy who's going to come and rescue you, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to take away the consequences of the curse, Hey, I, I'm that guy," he says. You know, when you see the covenant in Genesis chapter twelve and the land and the seed and the blessing, I, I fulfill those things. When you see that covenant renewed in Genesis fifteen and seventeen, that's that's me. When you see uh, the the uh, the lion of Judah and the scepter of Judah, when that blessing in Genesis forty nine is 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 pronounced over Judah, the son of Jo, uh, son of Israel, Jacob, he's like. Guess who that, who that guy is? That's me. I hold, I hold the scepter. And guess what my scepter is? It's the cross. That's the victory. You know, when you go into Exodus and you, and you see Yahweh speak out of the burning bush, this God who says, I will be what I will be, I am who I am, this is, this is Yahweh, guess what, I, I am that guy. Jesus going through the entire scriptures doing this. And guys, I, I can do this, and I could take the next seven miles to do this over and over and over and over in the scriptures, all through the prophets. And it's in light of Jesus that we can see how intertextual the scriptures are, how they just unite with each other, and they testify to Jesus, all the way to Isaiah 52 and 53, where he says, the servant... The suffering servant is going to be brutalized on your behalf. By his wounds, you'll be healed. By his, by, by his sacrifice. And guess what? And he shall see light. He shall be resurrected, Isaiah says. And Jesus says, hey, that's me. Guys, that's, that's me. So he's explaining all these things to, to them about Jesus. But they don't know it's Jesus yet, right? He's saying to them, hey, This is the Christ. So they drew near the village in verse 28. They're going. Jesus acts like he's going to keep on going further. But they say, hey, come stay with us. It's late. Uh, So he goes and he stays with them. And in verse verse 30, when he was at table with them, remember, we've been going through this series, and every sermon has been around a table. Every sermon has been around a meal. And this one is also around a meal. Jesus is at table with him. He's he's probably reclining at the table. And he takes the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. That should remind you of other meals that Jesus has had in the scriptures, uh, in the Gospel of Luke in particular, because these are almost the exact same words for when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He he gives thanks for it, he blesses it, and he, he gives it to them. Uh, and then in the Last Supper also, he blesses it, he gives thanks for it, and he gives it to them. And so reminded of that in this, in, in this one verse, that Jesus has done this, and when he does it, their eyes were opened, and they saw him, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Why? Why would he vanish in that moment? Why would he choose that moment to vanish from? because they didn't need to see him anymore. They didn't need it. The Spirit had opened their eyes. Their eyes, where they were blind before, now, now they weren't. The Spirit had opened their eyes. Through what? Through communion. Through the Word and the Spirit. Through fellowship. Through remembering Jesus, their eyes were open. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? The question here, guys, isn't, when was the last time my heart burned with the scriptures, by hearing the scriptures? The question is, why isn't your heart burning now? Why isn't your heart burning now? As we are in the scriptures together, as we see what happened here, as we see what's going on, like their hearts are burning within them when when Jesus is just talking, when the Word made flesh is just talking and Jesus is, is expounding the scriptures to them and their hearts are on fire. And so what do they do? Verse 33, they rose that same hour. There's an urgency. They returned to Jerusalem. Guys, they were seven miles away. It was late at night. Right? it's not, probably not the safest road to be on. And they didn't care. There's this urgency. And yet us as followers of Jesus, who we're supposed to be welcoming people to the table, we're supposed to be sharing our faith with people, we're supposed to be saying, hey guys, There's a hope of the world, his name is Jesus. He is love, he is light, he is truth, he is the way, he is is our everything. We don't have any urgency. We actually let our circumstances dictate us and our actions, and here, it's dark, it's late, they're tired, and it doesn't matter. They get up that same hour, they return to Jerusalem, I picture them running, don't say they ran, but I picture them going with an urgency, right? And they found the 11, so the 11 disciples, you know, that's minus Judas. Uh, So they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together. So there are other disciples there. There are other followers of Jesus there. And they were shouting and saying to them, the Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Now, this is kind of a, they say he's appeared to Simon, which is kind of a, an interesting thing because we don't have a narrative for Jesus appearing to Simon Peter. And they're referring to Simon Peter. But we don't have a narrative in the Gospels where Jesus appears to Peter individually. But we have other evidences of this, that Jesus sought Peter out specifically and appeared to him in order to restore him. Right, uh, We see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter, and all the other disciples too. He, he singles out Peter there. We see this in the Gospel of Mark uh, where, where it also singles out Peter. And now we see this in, in this passage where it singles out Simon Peter as well. So we have here this picture of Jesus in his greatest suffering, now in his greatest glory, in his greatest victory, chasing after the one who turned his back on him and denied him three times publicly. And he goes and he seeks to restore him. He goes and he seeks to, to, to rectify his heart, to change his perspective. He goes and, and, and he, he tries to, to tell him, hey, I, it's okay. Like, I wanna be here for you and, and I wanna pick you up and I wanna carry your burdens and, and it's okay, I'm alive. Like, like what what happened back then? You are redeemed from that. You are restored. It doesn't have to define you, because you are Peter, and you are gonna help birth the church, right? And we see this played out in the book of Acts, where Peter uh, just declares Jesus. He does exactly what Jesus did here, to the people of Jerusalem, where he goes through the scriptures and he. He points to Jesus through the scriptures. And on that day, thousands of people come to faith. And so he appears to Peter here. And Jesus, it's like he's giving us a model of how to do this in the world, what we're supposed to do. Guys, there's people that you love. There's people that are are your friends. They are your family. They're your coworkers. There's people that, that... You want them to have the abundant life and you want them to know the life that you know. Now you have to be living that abundant life, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you you are living that life. And yet we're still standing back. There's no urgency. And Jesus shows us this urgency in going to one in particular and restoring him. We've been talking through this series uh, how we're supposed to do that, and we've been talking about, like, just think of somebody that you can do this with, that you can share your faith with them through healing and forgiveness and restoration and perspective and suffering and expectation and all these things. And, and so today, guys, is not just a day of celebration. It's not just a day for Christians to come together and celebrate. It's a day of action, It's a day for us to do something about it. It's a day for us to to go and show the world that there's better, like that there's something better for them than what they're chasing. That there's hope, that there's redemption, that there's forgiveness, that there's healing. It's a day for us to do that. So you may not have come into today thinking that way, but when you leave today, think that way. Don't think, what are we having for lunch? And what's Easter dinner going to be like? Think about who can I bring to the table today? Who can I share this celebration with today? And do something today in your neighborhood. Do something today in, in, in the city. I do something today with your, with your uh, friends and your family where you get to show them Jesus, where you get to invite them to the table. Today, Missy and I are having our next-door neighbors over for a mini egg, Easter egg hunt thing. They have, they have small kids. We have small kind of kids. They're <laughs> seven and eight. Yeah, I don't know. They don't seem so small anymore. Um, and and Missy's like, hey, we should do this with our neighbors just to be in a relationship with them on today, Easter. And and I'm, and, and I'm thinking, oh, well, we, like, and, and today of all days, like, we're, today's a jam-packed day for us, like, with, with everything that we're doing. And, and yet, we still want to be we still want to invite our neighbors into that. And we live in a Jewish um, neighborhood. Thank you. We live in a Jewish neighborhood. So our next door neighbors are, are Jewish. And, um, and we get to just show them the love of Jesus. We get to show them the love of a Jew today. How amazing is that? Right? Through candy and, and empty plastic eggs that represent an empty tomb. Maybe I'll slip that in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so do something today, like make this a day of action, that's what happens here. They run and they're declaring that he's alive, and it says in verse 35, then, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in what? In the breaking of bread. Something really awesome happens here, biblically, theologically, with Jesus and the breaking of bread. Think about food for an instance. Think about the act of eating. The act of, in the act, the act of eating was the vehicle for the first sin. Do you realize that? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The first sin is disobedience, and, and we can kind of parse it from there. But uh, the vehicle for it was them taking fruit from the tree and eating When that happened, everything was corrupted. Even eating. Right? Think about food today. Think about how we deal with food and how we interact with food. Like, some of us seek our image in it, right? Like, we don't eat certain foods because we want a better image, right? So you're not gonna eat Cheetos or sausage or all the things that I eat. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to figure, you're not gonna eat these things because you want a better body image, and you put your your image based on food in here, not in the image of God, right? Or there's certain foods that you do eat. Why? Sausage, Cheetos, for comfort and refuge, right? We have this accepted thing in our culture, comfort food. Yeah, ice cream ah, after a breakup or whatever, and and we sought refuge in it when we're supposed to seek refuge and comfort in God. We put our identity in food. It's a cultural identity, right? right? Like, think about cultures and food and what defines the culture. A lot of cultures are defined by what they eat. And so our, even our cultural identity is in food. And it's corrupted. It's, it's made us, like, all these things we have searched for God's goodness in, Because it was the vehicle of the first sin, right? And they declared at that point, and they're exerting control. They declared, no, we know what is good. They said to God, we know what is good, what is right for us, so we're going to take of this specific, particular tree and fruit and eat of it because we want to say what's good and right for us. And you don't get to do that for us anymore, God. And so they're trying to have control. So food is still that way in our lives. And think about the, the curse, the consequences of, of this. The serpent has to, what? He has to eat of the dust of the ground the rest of his life. All his days, it says. He's got to eat of it. That's, his, that's the consequence, right? Food for food here, right? He's got to eat of the dust of the ground. For Adam, what, what, what is the, one of the main consequences? It's... In order to get food, they were totally dependent on God over here. Food was abundant. Now in order to get food, what do they have to do? They have to toil and work by the sweat of his brow. They have to work for it. Like, because they traded dependence and trust in God for what they thought was good themselves. And now even food, a basic essential necessity for us, is corrupted. But guess what? God has a plan of redemption. And we see this played out through the, through the scriptures. And in Leviticus, for instance, this whole book is designed around food. You read this book, uh, and it's probably like, Leviticus, Leviticus is probably the, the one book in the Bible that, that probably the majority of people haven't read because it's like, what is all this about? It's all these laws and, and all these things. And a lot of it centers around what? Food. And it centers around eating right? And it says, don't eat this. Eat this. Don't eat this. This is clean. This is unclean. Don't do this. Don't, eat, eat this. And God is trying to create and craft a people as a new vehicle for the light of the world. And he's doing this, in a lot of ways, through food. Through food. Through eating. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy, right? And then we have, we have uh, Exodus, and, and uh, the, the Israelites are in the wilderness. And in the book of Exodus, they go in the wilderness, and guess what they don't have out there? Food. They can't eat. They don't have food. So what does God do? He says, you're, you're dependent on me. I'm going to give you bread from heaven. I'm going to give you manna. So every morning, they're supposed to trust God that they wake up every morning, and there's manna there. And they don't have to store it up and save it, because if they do, it just turns into maggoty-ridden food. So they don't store it up and save it, because every day, God provides it. And what does manna taste like? Exodus says it tastes like honey. It tastes like honey. And then you get to Deuteronomy 26, and they're going to the promised land, and they're trying to... They're going into this land that has been promised them back in Genesis 12, 15, 17. They're going into this land that represents God's presence and his rest, a return to the Garden of Eden, in a sense, God's presence and his rest. And how is the land described? As a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we have here manna tastes like honey. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, and then you yeah, have the psalm. The psalmist says that, this is Psalm 19, where he says, the word of the Lord is sweeter than honey. And then back in Deuteronomy, you have Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses writes, man shall not live by bread alone. Think manna, right? Or, Or any other food you want to put in there. But by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So we're supposed to live by the word. And the word is sweeter than honey. And so now... What's, what ex, what's being exchanged here is, is our sustenance doesn't come from physical food, it comes from spiritual food, right? And we see this exchange here happening. But there's still a physical reality and representation of this in real food. Okay? So we have here the spiritual, the physical, they're all weaving together, they're not separate. That's a Greek dichotomy. Like, Paul puts them together, Jesus puts them together, the physical and the spiritual, they, they interact and represent each other, we just can't see the spiritual. Uh, so that's philosophy like a little nutshell for you. Now coming back to the scriptures, we have here, the psalmists say, the word is sweeter than honey. And then we have this, this um, uh, the psalmists say, taste. Psalm 34: Taste and see that the Lord is good. Isaiah in chapter one, verse nineteen, he says, he says, if you are willing and you're obedient, you will taste, you will eat of the good of the land. You'll know God's presence and His rest through willingness and obedience. And then in Isaiah 25, we have this picture, this prophecy of this messianic banquet that. That all the nation's going to be around and we're going to eat with Jesus, with the Messiah, with the Rescuer, with the Redeemer. We're going to have a feast. And then in Daniel 4, or all of Daniel, Daniel's first few chapters, we have Daniel fasting. And why is he fasting? And fasting means he's, he's abstaining from certain foods. And he's doing that. He's just eating vegetables and drinking water. That sucks. But he's doing that. (laughs) He's just eating vegetables and drinking water. And and he is fasting to show his dependence on the Lord. And then we see Jesus in Matthew 4 fasting in the wilderness, right? He's fasting in the wilderness. It's combining images from the scriptures, right? We should think of Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness. Israelites were baptized. Through crossing the Red Sea, Jesus, right after his baptism, Matthew 3, goes in the wilderness. Do you see the parallels here? He's in the wilderness, and Satan comes to tempt him, and he says to him, while Jesus has been without food 40 days, he says, hey, have some of this food. Make, make the stones into bread. Like, you can do that. Like, if you're the son of God, do it. And what does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? And then we see Jesus say in Matthew 6, a sermon on the mountain, which is is the kingdom citizen. He's telling us how to live in the kingdom. He says in Matthew 6, he says, don't be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink. You shouldn't be anxious about those things. Don't worry about those things. Depend on me and I will provide for you. Trust in me and I will provide in you, provide for you. And then we see the last, we see all these meals through Luke. We see the last supper where Jesus sits down and he breaks bread. He redefines what eating bread and drinking means. And he, he says, put this in context of me. And, and we have isolated it to this, right? Remembering Jesus is right here. But why do we pray before we eat as, as Christians? It's to remember Jesus. It's not just, if you don't have bread for your meal, it doesn't mean we don't remember Jesus. If you're eating a steak, if you're eating broccoli, whatever you're eating, you still get to remember Jesus. Like that, the meal is us remembering Jesus. Is that, you guys following there? Like the feast, Jesus is redeeming something that was ruined and wrecked by us from the very beginning. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, do all to the glory of God. Even what? Eating and drinking even eating and drinking, due to the glory of God. Even those things. That's why in Acts 10, Peter is laying down on the roof, taking a nap, and God comes to him in a vision and has a sheet, and all these animals, clean and unclean, are on there. And this is Leviticus, right? On a sheet. And And God says, I have declared all things clean. Don't declare unclean what I have declared clean. All of this is clean for you. I've redeemed it. I've redeemed eating for you, the very vehicle of sin from the very beginning I've redeemed for you. You're free in it. And then we see the picture of the messianic banquet in Revelation at the end, which is an echo to Isaiah 25, right? And so we see all these parallels, a New Testament one and an Old Testament one, all, all together. It's like a, well, it's a chiastic structure, right? Like it's, it's, coming up, and then like that. So so we have here this messianic banquet that we get to celebrate, the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation, and it's a feast. Uh, You want to know what we're going to be doing when we're Jesus at the end? We're going to be eating. We're going to be drinking. Yeah, we're going to have a feast, and because Jesus has redeemed, and you know what we're going to be doing during that? We're going to be remembering what he's done for us. We're going to be celebrating what he's done for us, and that's why in Revelation 22, at the very end, What do we see? At the very end of the scriptures, we see something there that was at the very beginning of the scriptures. The tree of life. The tree that we're supposed to be eating from. The tree that we couldn't eat from because we messed everything up. But now we get to eat from because Jesus made everything right. And Jesus has redeemed eating for us and that's why at the very end, he says, they say here, or Luke says here, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so this morning, when we take communion, when we take fellowship with one another, that's what communion means, where we're entering into fellowship with one another as the body of Christ, we remember Jesus. Jesus. Remember that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and we get to celebrate this together, not because he saved you from your sins and you get to go to heaven. Like, that's one piece. Like, if that's your idea of the gospel, that he saved you from your sins and you get to go to heaven, you are just on the threshold of the Lord's house. This is not a gospel of mere salvation. This is a gospel of transformation. This is the gospel of the kingdom, and it changes your life, and it affects everything we do. So step into the house and welcome home. Jesus is welcoming you home this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you make all things new. Oh, man, I wish, Jesus, I wish we could grasp that, that you have actually made all things new, that you are, according to Colossians, you are reconciling all things to you, not just all people, all things, like we are a part of that, you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, so we get to reconcile all things and be a part of that, because you are doing that work. And so we join you this morning. Thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you that you were willing and obedient, and you tasted the good of the land you ate of it, and because of that, we can do that. And so, Jesus, it's, there's nothing in us. There's nothing that we can do, and we recognize that you have done it all for us, and we love you, Jesus, and we celebrate that this morning.